0: We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. So, Christmas time is often marked as a season of anticipation. Uh, We were recounting earlier today uh, for many of us, the older we get, the more it, it becomes hard to tap into this reality. However, Probably perhaps for most of us, we can remember a time when we were children as we were awaiting the coming of Christmas. There was a, a longing for this day to occur. And longing can be a powerful thing when we're anticipating something better on the horizon. It can, it can change it. It can sharpen us, keep us from settling for lesser pleasures when we know that something greater out there awaits us. It can give us the strength to endure even the darkest night and the strongest trial when we know that hope is on the horizon. And friends, that's why we celebrate Advent here at Emmaus. This is why we wanted to take aside a month and and join the saints abroad in in assuming this posture of those who are a people in waiting. For you see, throughout history and throughout the Scriptures, we find the people of God assuming this this posture. Whether this be the Old Testament saints who are waiting for the coming of the Messiah, or the New Testament saints, those of us who have embraced and seen the partial fulfillment of God's promises through Jesus Christ and eagerly await for His second coming in which He will come to right all wrongs and make all things new. Friends, we chosen to go through the Psalms for that very reason. The Psalms have a way of, of tapping into emotions we didn't know we had. And as we hear the cry of the Psalms, we recognize that Jesus is the answer to these cries, whether that be a song of praise, rejoicing in the salvation that is ours and is ours to come, whether that be a cry of longing and seeing the wickedness around us and wondering, is there an avenger who will write all things? The answer to this is emphatically Jesus Christ. And as we've been working our way through the Psalms, we've got the joy of exploring many of these realities. In Psalm 103, we were reminded of the infinite blessings that are unequivocally ours in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In Psalm 2, we were reminded that though the nations rage against the rule and authority of our King, and though it seems like evil goes unchecked, we were reminded that the throne of Christ is sure. His reign is supreme and He will have the final word. His kingdom is the eternal kingdom. Then last week in Psalm 110, we were reminded that all of the covenant promises that are given to us in the Old Testament, are fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So as we conclude our series on Advent, as we have joined in as this people-in-waiting, today the question looms large over us, and the question that our passage today emphatically answers, so what do we do about this? What does it look like to be a people-in-waiting? Knowing the realities that are ours in Jesus Christ, the promises that have been fulfilled and will be fulfilled in Him, what is to be our posture? And the answer to that is found in Psalm 96. Notice specifically verse 10 serves as almost a theme verse for this. It says this, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge peoples with equity. See, friends, this is what it looks like to be a people in waiting. As a people who are awaiting the promises of God to come in fulfillment, we have the joyful task of declaring God's reign amongst the earth, inviting men and women to join in this process of worshiping our Lord. So this is what we're going to see in Psalm 96 today. We're going to notice that as we work our way through the text. We're going to see this call to declare the Lord among the nations. Secondly, we're going to see this contrasted, the Lord versus the idols of the people. And then finally, we're going to be reminded that the Lord is coming to judge. So let's go ahead and get into this. Let's read verses 1 through 3 together in Psalm 96. It says this, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous work among all peoples. So we notice as the psalmist begins here, he begins with this call for us to sing. This is repeated three times. And many of you, I see a lot of parents in the room, you know if you've had to repeat yourself three times, it's because it's a very important command and it's not being uh, listened to maybe in some cases. But in this case, it's our author's way of showing us that this is an important thing. It should catch our attention. We have this call, all the earth mandate to sing a new song to the Lord. Now, this new song is not new in the sense that it is a new content. It's not a song that's being rewritten with a new message. However, this is implying a reality in which we have the joy in each generation of singing anew what the Lord has done on behalf of His people. We see this further iterated in our our text further on as we look and we notice that this call to sing has a twofold purpose in it. Let's notice in verse 2, we see the first reason for that. It says, sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. You see, friends, we see that this call for us to declare what the Lord has done for us, namely of his salvation, that though he is the creator and we are the creation, we have rebelled against him, and yet in Jesus Christ we have been restored to him. Any man or woman who would put their faith in Jesus Christ would no longer stand as rebels before a holy God, but would be brought back into right relationship with him. We see this salvation as a message on our lips, and as we declare this, it has a vertical component to it. See, the Lord is glorified when we recognize our neediness and our need for Him. The Lord receives glory when we acknowledge of His kindness and salvation. The Lord is glorified when we as His people come together in one voice and declare Him as worthy. And friends, this is no light thing. Don't miss this, even in Pastor Sam's confession, he, he brought light to the fact that for many of us, maybe coming here this morning was a challenge, perhaps for many of us, uh, it feels like a challenge to be here and, and juggle all of the things you have to juggle, and yet take heart in this Christian, in being here, in singing these songs, and worshiping our Lord together, you have blessed your Lord this morning, you were pleasing to Him in doing so, and this is no light thing. We notice also, though, not only is this song meant to go vertically up to the Lord, but as we're declaring the praise of the Lord and His salvation, that there's a horizontal component to it as well, right? We see this in verse 3. It says, Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all people. So we see Christians, as we are declaring the Lord's salvation and worshiping in Him and what He has done, there is a vertical component that also compels us to speak to those who currently are not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have not heard the name of Jesus and know not of the salvation that is found in Him, we have this joy of proclaiming Him, this joyful mandate and task. For you see, God is not a regional entity. He is not merely the Lord of some, but He is the Lord of all. There is no borders or boundaries that confine Him. He's not limited to a shrine or a holy place, but He is the Lord of all things, and as such, all things owe allegiance and praise to Him. And as His people, it's our joyful duty to call men and women to renounce their sins and to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as the only mediator between God and man, the hope of salvation. Friends, it's not lost on me that although this is a joyful task that the people of God have been engaging in throughout history, There has never been a time in history where this is not a contested message. In fact, if we were to survey ourselves in 21st century American cultural context, it would be safe to say that the idea of a gospel proclamation in which we're calling men and women to repent of their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is an offensive message. In fact, the sentiment of this age would state that religion, particularly Christianity, has no place in the public sphere. And sure, it can be a good thing in your private life if it's something that gives you peace and allows you to uh, kind of navigate situations. There's some value to that, sure, but it doesn't belong in the public sphere. It becomes taboo when we speak of sin, when we speak of only one way to salvation, when we speak of judgment. Friends, I'm afraid that for many of us, we have believed the lie of this culture that says in a polite society it's improper to talk about religion in the public sphere. I fear for many of us, we have taken a step back in light of the intensity of conversations and said the best thing we can do in this moment is to kind of lay low for a while. Take a step back, allow the shouting voices to finish off, and we're just going to be really, really nice and kind of ride the wave. Never cause any turmoil. Never stir anything up. Now, while I will admit that there is something very beautiful about steadiness in a storm, that call for steadiness to remain one who refuses to speak the truth is not, first of all, loving, and second of all, biblical. This is based on false pretenses. For you see, the idea that the culture is this a-religious entity, that the public square is this amoral place, is simply a lie. When someone comes to the public sphere and says, my lifestyle is as legitimate as any and you have no right to judge me, that is an inherently religious statement. That is a moral evaluation. When a politician stands forward and says that we should give hormone therapy to eight-year-olds to block puberty, That is an inherently religious statement. And so, friends, when we step back from the conversation, thinking we're doing the world a favor by laying low, the truth is we're actually doing the opposite of that. We're depriving the nations of the remedy they need for sin. And so, Christian, we must be about this. It is the loving thing to do, to call men and women into repentance, and into conformity with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the loving thing for us to do. And I say this not because I believe you guys don't believe this, but I know myself as someone who works in a secular society that it's easy to believe the opposite. It's as though every time we step out the door, we hear that you can't say that. It's unloving to call that a sin. It's unloving for you to impress your values upon somebody else. But friend, this sentiment is false. It's unbiblical, and it hurts other people. When we fail to remind people of the hope that they have in Jesus Christ, when we fail to warn people of the danger that is sin, we are neither being loving towards them nor caring, but cowardly. For you see, the realities of the gospel are true whether or not you choose to ascribe to them. The Lord is the rightful ruler of all things, whether or not you think that he is. Just as though you cannot subvert the rules of gravity in defiance by saying, I don't believe in you, and jumping off a building, so it is that you cannot subvert the fact that Christ is Lord. And so, Christian, embrace this reality that we are loving others in declaring the gospel and calling them to forsake their sin and coming to Christ Jesus. It's the loving thing to do. I fear that for many of us, we have this mentality almost that we're the used car salesmen of the 21st century. We kind of have to apologetically try to peddle Jesus to people, and we only want to give the parts that we like, the parts that we think everyone will enjoy, things like, well, God is love. You know, Jesus came as a baby, silent night, holy night. And yet we, we run from the realities of sin. And yet, friends, this is what makes the gospel so great. The reality that we deserve wrath, and yet Christ has come on our behalf. The fact that we deserve judgment, and yet in Christ we have acceptance. Friends, this is the joyful message we have to proclaim. And notice here, the psalmist is not unclear about this. This message we have is hope. For the idols of the people are worthless. Let's see this together in verses 4 through 9 says this, For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the people are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness and tremble before him all the earth. In this passage, we're we're forced to reckon with the reality of the utter division between the idols of the people and the Lord God himself. Notice in verse 5, this is pointed out in 4, where we see that the Lord is the one who created all things. It was out of his Being and out of his creative genius that he spoke all things into existence, the stars and the galaxies he put into place, the molecules that currently hold your body together, he is the one who put them into place and is causing them to hold together. It is in him that they have their being and movement. And yet we contrast this to an idol. A block of wood that cannot speak, it cannot save. We see throughout... The scriptures, many examples that decry the effectiveness of an idol. I want to read just one of them for you today. We could, we could look into several, but let's read Psalm 135, 15, 18 quickly. It says this, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Friends, this is the tragic reality we see when we put our trust in man made things, in things created by human beings. We come to these things hoping that they will give us life, and yet what we see, the clear implication of our text, is that we actually become like these idols, dead and lifeless ourselves. They have no effectiveness in saving us, for they themselves have no living. They are not creators, but created. They are dead, and they make those who follow them dead as well. And friends, so it is with all of us. Throughout human history, we have seen the plight of men amplified as they have tried and tried and tried to find meaning in empty things. Perhaps there's someone among us today who would challenge the notion that there's idolatry present here in 21st century American culture. You say, show me the statue that people are, are bowing down to and worshiping. And yet, just as the great reformer John Calvin said, the human heart is the ultimate idol factory. This profession and proclamation and creation of idols still remains alive and among us today. You're probably right in saying there's not a statue, but the worship and idolatry of the people is amongst us at all times. Particularly in 21st century America, there are plenty of things we could point to. One I see almost most prominently at every turn, whether it's on a... A commercial or on a tweet, we see the idea of the glorified self, the idolatry of the individual put on full display. It can be subtle for us. You might miss it if you're not looking for it. However, when you hear things said like, the only way for you to be wrong is if you aren't true to your truest self. Friends, this is idolatry. Think of the number of unspeakable things that can be done under the banner of self-fulfillment and self-gratification. Friends, this is an empty and barren idol that offers no solution. Yet we've seen it propped up in our midst. We've seen it applied not only to the individual, but put forward and out from us through the teachings of, of men like Marx, Darwin, Freud. We have attempted to separate ourselves and elevate humanity to its highest level, to a utopia of sorts. And yet what we see is that these Ideas have fundamental flaws in them. Namely this, each one of them assumes that the problem is coming from the outside and the solution comes from within. When, friends, the exact opposite of that is true. The truthful reality is your biggest problem comes from within and the solution to it is from outside. And that solution is Jesus Christ. So, friends, we see that at the foot of these idols... We see broken marriages, the bodies of dead individuals, those crying out, save me, have mercy on me, and yet they fall upon the dead ears of an idol. And yet this is not the case with your Lord, the Lord God of Israel, Jesus Christ himself, the Holy One. He is not like these things, for he is the giver of life. To him belong splendor, glory, and honor. All majesty and power are his Unlike other religions, he himself, rather than man trying to pull their way up to find God, Christ came to us. This is the celebration of the Advent. We can't be the hero of our story. We see Christ himself as the one who has come to us. He has come in his majesty and splendor and he has come in the form of a humble servant and given to us that which we truly need. Friends, anytime I think of the the stark difference between an idol versus the Lord. I always think to one of my favorite moments in history. Those of you who are familiar with uh, the book of 1 Kings, chapter 17, it tells of a prophet by the name of Elijah. Perhaps you're familiar with him. Elijah was sent to the king of Israel, Ahab, with the task to decry the idolatry that he had promoted in their midst. For Ahab had married Jezebel and brought in the worship of Baal, And through this worship, he had introduced not only a rejection of the Lord and his authority, but it introduced this cult of worship in which all kinds of heinous and deviant practices were formed. And I won't get into the gory details since we do have a mixed audience today. But for our purposes, we see that the entirety of this purpose was to worship these gods, to call them to come together so that they might fertilize the earth and produce a bountiful harvest. See, this was Baal's job the people of Israel bowing the knee to this God so that they might have crops. And we see the Lord came to Elijah. Elijah went to Ahab and said, until I say the word, there will be no rain in this land. The king thought he was a crazy person, but he got very upset when the rain stopped. The drought came and all the crops were dead. He put a hit out on Elijah's life, and we know ultimately this would kind of crescendo to this moment. For those of you who are familiar with the story where Elijah stands on top of Mount Carmel, calls down fire from heaven, showing God's superiority to Baal. However, before that ever happened, we see Elijah is forced to flee the land, and he goes to a town called Zarephath in the nation of Sidon. Sidon is the nation where Baal worship was instituted. It was the center of Baal worship. In fact, historians say that Zarephath was actually a place where Baal idols were produced. You could even smell Melting metal as they were preparing to cast these. And yet Elijah shows up to this town and he finds this woman there. We don't even know her name. She's called the widow of Zarephath. This is a woman who had placed her trust in Baal. She had put her hope in Baal and yet we see Baal had failed to deliver the goods to her. Baal had promised to deliver crops on her behalf and yet when Elijah approaches this woman in this drought stricken land, he asks her where she's going and recognizing that he's a prophet of the Lord, she said, I'm going home. I have my last bit of oil left and my last bit of flour left. I'm going to mix them together, bake a cake, and then my son and I are going to die of starvation. See, Baal had failed this woman. In that moment, the prophet Elijah calls out to this woman, and he says to her, before you do that, bake me the cake first. Now this isn't Elijah being selfish and trying to pull a bait and switch on her so he can get a meal and run while she starves to death. But what he's calling upon her to do in this moment is to place her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To call out to the Lord for salvation and to relinquish her worship of Baal. And we see this woman follows in obedience. She goes home and bakes the cake and gives it to Elijah. She trusts that the Lord God would supply her needs. And the scriptures tell us for the next two years, Elijah remained in this home. And even though no one came in with a grocery store pickup. We see that the jug never ran out of oil. The container of flour was never empty, and all of a sudden in the passage we see it fed her entire family. Her house becomes the beacon of the place where the Lord's blessing is showing, and we see in this moment the fact that Baal had failed her. Her idols had promised that they would give her life and wholeness, and yet they left her on the brink of death. And yet we see it was the Lord alone who provides. And friend, this is why we unashamedly call men and women to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not because we like to be combative. It's not because we like to challenge people and nitpick, but because we truly believe that the Lord God has the goods and that the idols of this earth are empty. They can't produce that which everyone needs. And that's why... It is our duty and our joy and our delight to call men and women to repentance and to faith in this Lord who supplies all our needs. In Baal, there was a drought, and yet in the Lord we find the bread of life. And Friends, this is our happy task that we have in light of Advent. We do so with an urgency because we see that the Lord's coming is promised. Let's notice this in our final section of the text here. In verses 10 through 13, it says this. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees and forests sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness. Friends, so the question before us, what does it look like to be a people waiting upon the Lord? What does it look like to be those who are longing for Christ's coming? For us, the people of God, it is laid out for us in this text. We are to be those who declare the Lord reigns. Yes, the earth is His and it is established and it shall not be moved. The rulers and principalities of this age will not have the final say. The idols that have drained us and emptied us will be abolished, and the Lord will come and establish his reign. Friends, he will judge sin rightly. For those of us who look out in the world around us and we see the unspeakable evils that are done, something within us cries out, is there a judge of the earth who will right all things wrong? Friends, we have this answered emphatically, yes, in Jesus Christ. We see he is coming to judge and his judgments are done so in righteousness and faithfulness. His judgment is always equitable. He does not wink at sin sometimes and then forgive it at other times. He does not give a harsh sentence here and then let someone bribe him over here. For the Lord God always judges sin perfectly and to the fullness. And friends, this is great news, but it's also terrifying news. For you see, if Christ judges sin Appropriately, The appropriate judgment of all sin is eternal wrath. For all sin is a rebellious offense against an eternal holy God and is therefore justly punished so. And yet, friends, this is the glorious news we see in the gospel is that Christ in his first coming did not come in his judgment. Christ did not come the first time as the judge of the earth, yet we see that Christ came to save the earth. This is the beauty of the Christmas story. This is the beauty of the first advent is that Christ in his first coming came as a humble servant. He came as a baby and one who is familiar with suffering. He carried the yoke of humanity and yet he did not partake in the sinfulness of it. He lived a perfect life. He suffered in every way and yet remained faithful. And when he went on the cross, he endured the wrath of God. The sin and punishment that was due our name for all eternity, he absorbed in his body and left not an ounce left over for you. So, friend, this is why we preach Christ crucified as of first importance, the hope to all men and women. This is why we call upon men and women to forsake their former lives of sin and to cry out and cling to Jesus Christ because he is that good. And if you call upon his name today, he will be faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Just like that woman at Zarephath. Just like Adam Sanders. Just like many of you in this room. If you call out to Christ today, you'll find that He has truly all that we need in this life and the life to come. It's in light of these things that I want to end with two pastoral charges. The first one is this. I want to give an invitation slash charge to join in this joyful task of declaring the gospel. Just as we've had the joy and the bittersweet joy this morning of sending out to a faithful brother and sister, and we will have the joy of doing that with more in the months to come, I want to invite you, Emmaus, to remember this reality that we have the joy in partnering with these brothers and sisters. Their labor is not extracted from us, as we have the joy of getting to send them out, as we continue to find ways that we can encourage them and and support them in doing so, their labor becomes our labor. We get to participate in this joyful duty of proclaiming Christ crucified to places where his name is not often mentioned. So friends, I invite you to press in on this. I also want to encourage you to see yourself now under God's providential grace as the gospel ambassador that He chose to place in the current context where you find yourself today. Friends, perhaps maybe you find yourself in a space where you're feeling somewhat discontent. And that might be justified in some ways. But I would ask you to consider the fact that the Lord has placed you where you are today so that you might be His ambassador for the gospel to the people that you work with, to the family and your home. This is your joyful duty. And friends, I come to you speaking as one who often feels the temptation to just be the nice guy, get by to get by, live and let live, get along to get along. And yet I want to charge you and encourage you today to embrace a spine of steel when it comes to your public evangelism. I fear that we are more likely to be skeptical and judgmental towards the man who walks downtown and tells someone about Jesus Christ than we are to the person who never says anything about his name. We have a tendency to critique the other ways that people are standing up for Christ, and yet we ourselves find ourselves kind of slinking into the corner, waiting and seeing if the right opportunity might come. And friends, I want you to just consider killing that right now as you walk out the door. For you see, with the intensity of the public square, we might think that our voice will just become part of the noise. But friends, I promise you, if you are declaring Christ crucified, if you are walking in obedience to Him in holiness, and you are seeking to bring pleasure, and you are calling men and women not in a spirit of hatred or anger towards them, not in a mocking way, but if you are inviting them to renounce their sin and to embrace Jesus Christ, friends, there is a good chance you will face derision. You will be labeled and named with people who you probably shouldn't be labeled and named with. But I promise you that faithfulness in this moment is worth it. It glorifies your Lord, for starters. And secondly, I firmly believe that when the dust settles, When you have lovingly called someone to repent of their sin and walk in faithfulness, yet they have continued after the lust of the flesh. I firmly believe that when the harvest of sin has come on their life and they recognize in that moment that the bitterness of sin, the deceitfulness of sin, the emptiness of the idols of this world, they will not be looking to the people who hid in the corner, but they will be looking to the men and women who were faithful to call them to repentance and point them towards Jesus. So labor faithfully, church. Have a resolve that you will proclaim Christ crucified without fear. And finally, I would be remiss if I didn't invite you to in this moment, uh, for those who are are with us, especially those who are not believers, to call you to release your idols. I promise you this is not a, a mocking sense. But whatever that idol is, it will not bring you fulfillment. There is going to come a day when it's unable to bear the hope that you've placed on it. Whether it's in this life or the life to come, there will come a day where the bitter reality that your idol was not able to satisfy that which you most needed will come. And so I call upon you today to drop them. Smash the idols in your midst. Jonah 2 says that those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that is theirs. Friend, the invitation is open. Christ Jesus himself stands waiting. Cry out to him today. Forsake your idols and come to him. And I promise you, in him, you will find life and life more abundantly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this group. Lord, for this people that you've brought together. And Lord, I, I thank you for the kindness that uh, I have seen in them, Lord, for the, the joy in them that I've seen in you. And that, Lord, I thank you for their faithfulness in so many ways um, to edify your body, to, to love their brothers and sisters, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to move within us as we Continue this path as a people in waiting, Lord, a people in longing who await your glorious return, Lord. I pray that you would resolve in this midst, in this body, a a joyful resolve to proclaim Christ crucified as of first importance, Lord. I pray that you would cement in this people a, a spine of steel, Lord, that is willing to be chastised, that is willing to endure harsh words and even willing to Endure ostracism if it means lovingly calling men and women to repentance and calling men and women into faith in Christ Jesus, Lord. We recognize that the idols of this earth are empty, Lord. Separate our hearts from them, Lord. Would you grow within us a ever-increasing distaste for the idols of this world, Lord? Give us an appetite for holy things, Lord. Give us an appetite for that which pleases you. Lord, as we come forward to take this communion, I pray that you would implant within us a joyful desire to proclaim you as we walk out the door today. Lord, may you be glorified by this body in our, in our lives and, Lord, in our eagerness and our joy to worship you both corporately together and as we preach you going forward and outward, Lord. That's your name I pray, amen. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.